Hello, everyone, and welcome to Keith Crosby Out of My Mind. This is Podcast 022, Podcast 22, part of our series entitled Understanding Addiction, where we have this biblical conversation about addiction so that we can make sense of it using the Word of God. So join us over the next 20 to 25 minutes or so as we give you a bird's eye view perspective of this complex issue that confronts the church and our families and our society and our culture. And at the end of the podcast, we'll point you to additional resources for further study, just in case you'd like to dig a little bit deeper. In the meantime, let's get started. This episode is entitled Addiction Intervention. All right. So we're back here and doing one more episode on addiction. You know, we talked about last week the end of addiction, and it almost had this air of finality that there's almost feeling a little bit hopeless, but um, but there are things that we can do. And so, so what are some things, especially that like the family? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about. You know, we started this journey together talking about the morality and the theology of addiction, that addiction is a choice, a sinful choice that has consequences. We talked about the physiology and psychology of addiction, how that impacts the mind, the body, and the soul, and how these things come together to make it very difficult to kick the habit, so to speak. And then last time we talked about the end of addiction, and that's where addiction leads. And it often leads to death or, or dysfunction, delusion, uh, depression. You know, the wages of sin is death. And so what we have here really is a self-injury, a slow-motion suicide, and the question is, what's the way out? Is there hope? We talked about enablers who make things worse by doing dumb things for, for the right reason. But today, I want to talk about what a family can do. And that's why we're going to talk about intervention. Because without intervention, the addict is left on his own. So intervention. Here's what family and friends can do. They can intervene. We, we hear this term today, intervention. You know, this term has gained currency in the last several years. And I've seen a number of episodes from the TV show Intervention on Arts and Entertainment Network, but I'm reminded that the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 1.9 that there's nothing new under the sun. And certainly modern and pop psychology did not invent this concept. This concept is found in the Bible, in the Word of God. The culture, as it often does, borrows from the Bible without attribution. You could say plagiarizes. And that's what's happened here with this idea of intervention. Intervention shows up in the Bible in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Let me read it to you, and I want you to just think with me on this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But, verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let me rephrase this now. Think about it this way today. If your loved one is addicted to drugs, go and confront them. Tell them their fault between you and him or her alone. If she listens to you, you've gained your loved one. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every fact may be confirmed by the presence of other witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, expand the circle. And if they still will not listen, cut them off. That's an intervention. That is based on Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Now today, some people call that church discipline in some circles. You see this in a number of places in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 5, 
Paul did this type of ostracism, this cutting off of somebody who wouldn't turn from their damaging behavior over a sexual sin. And he talked about turning the person over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, that their spirit, their soul may continue. What this represents is a final attempt to get the sinner or the addict to snap out of it. The goal here is not punishment, but it is restoration. It is redemption. And part of the goal is, if they will not listen, is to cut them off from family and friends, from resources, so that they will come to the end of themselves much more quickly, so that they will hit rock bottom without bailouts, without an enabler stepping in to bail them out at the last minute. It's like the prodigal son reaching the end of himself and coming to his right mind. That's intervention according to the Word of God. Okay, so how does this work? I think, you know, confrontations can be very different on very many levels. Um, And when I read a passage like what you just read in Matthew 18, it it seems to be pretty directed to how we do things in the church. And so how does that play out, I think, in the larger scale of our confrontation? Well, you make a good point, Mark. Matthew 18 is primarily for the church. And every scripture has one meaning, but can have several applications. And so this is what we have in terms of something that can be applied in numerous situations, like to the family. That's the church family. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul deals with sexual sin within the congregation or the church family. All these are examples of intervention. First and Second Thessalonians, the church deals with those who refuse to work. No one is to associate them. Uh, Titus 3.10, again, at the church, people who just can't help but cause trouble and division, they are rebuked a couple of times, and then you know they are cast out. In Matthew 18, it's a little bit different. It does pertain to the church, and the escalation you see there is primarily for the church, but it really does also apply to everyday life. Uh, You know, this is tough love. It may seem cruel, but it's designed to rescue and to redeem rather than condemn. And you can't help notice that the goal is restoration, uh, winning your brother or sister. And, and it is an incremental process. It begins one-on-one, and then it expands. And at some point, you figure out that you're just going to have to cut this person off, treat them like a Gentile and an unbeliever or a tax collector. That's a betrayer in Bible times. And so the aim here is to speed up the process of them hitting rock bottom. And if you, if you, when you look at this, you can see it's an intervention because it, it appears like there's at least one moderator and other participants they refer to as witnesses. And what they do is they confront the addict in love with the facts. The addict is addicted. He's killing himself or herself in a slow-motion suicide, harming others whom they say they love. And ideally, this confrontation produces a significant emotional event, a moment of clarity. Now, in the Christian context, you're 100% right, Mark, this is believer to believer. But in the secular context, or our secular application, it could involve all kinds of people, not just people in the church, but in the family, friends, acquaintances, a doctor, their attorney, a a colleague. It's just opened up there. And the goal here is to produce what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 7 as godly sorrow. It's like a wake-up call, and they see what they've done, and it grieves them, not because they got caught, but because of what they've done and whom they've hurt. The Bible calls it a sorrow without loss. All right, a sorrow without loss. It seems like sorrow is from lost, typically, and, and I'm not sure how you have sorrow without loss. Well, what Paul is talking about is this. 
you jettison the sin or the sinful practice because you're sorry for what you did. You are grieved. It's a, it is a godly sorrow. It's not merely human remorse. And if they repent, if they snap out of it, they gain their lives back through the shock-induced grief at what they've done or what they've wasted. They lose their problem. That's the loss. They lose their sin. They lose their addiction. They hit rock bottom. Again, we talked about significant emotional events last time. Some people get saved. They come to Christ. They have a 2 Corinthians 5.17 changed from the inside out perspective. God gives them a heart transplant like in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. He takes away their heart of stone. He gives them a heart of flesh, and they become new creations. They snap out of this dive. The goal is always rescue and redemption. It's never punishment. It's never punitive. Now, if the addict won't repent, if they won't accept help, they're cut off from friends and family and all support systems, and they find themselves like the prodigal, far off and hopeless, without resources, on their own, hopefully reflecting on how they got there. Now, it's a desperate yet hopeful last-ditch effort. The secular world calls this intervention. You know, on TV, you'll see them read statements about how they're brokenhearted over what this friend or family member has chosen, and they they make uh, observations about what they've done. Here's the process according to Jesus, though, in verse 16, Matthew 18, 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the presence of two or three witnesses. This is where a group of people confronts the addict or confronts the sinner within the church or the addict and the family. And again, sometimes people snap out of it and they consent to go into rehab or go under supervision or repent outright. Other times they yell, scream, and cry and threaten others or threaten to harm themselves. But again, the aim is to help them reach rock bottom, and ultimately it depends on them and the unity of their social and support circle because you've got to be on guard. There's always somebody who means well, but is inclined or tempted to undermine or undercut the process, that so-called enabler. Yeah, I think a statement you said there is is really crucial. Uh, ultimately, it depends on them and the unity of their social and support circles. It's kind of everybody being together, everybody being on this same page uh, in order to help this addict. And so at what point would you say that an intervention or this family or church discipline type thing take place? It takes place at the moment the problem is detected. And that's why it begins with with a one-to-one level before things have gotten out of hand, before things have progressed or regressed too far. You know, sometimes a problem goes unnoticed and is well on its way to becoming something much bigger like addiction by the time the one-to-one confrontation occurs. And that's why there's that potential for escalation. That's why you can have, you know, you go to them, you talk to them, and then you end up having to bring somebody else into the equation as well. All right, so after this intervention, how long would you say it would take to see results? How long does the process take? And this is the really complicated part, because every situation is as different as an individual individual's fingerprint. But the process is the same. There's no cookie-cutter timetable. It depends on the scope and the extent of the problem or the addiction. And let me show you what I mean. This process should take place in daily life. In fact, I know it's taken place in your life, and you're probably saying, oh, what do you mean by that? You've got children. A child misbehaves, you confront them. Maybe a sibling confronts them first, and they won't listen, and so they'll go, they go get mom or dad. The child says, I'm sorry, and that's it. Or 
Sometimes the child has need of further discipline. You see it in the workplace. A guy, he's, he's consistently late to work. And, you know, he gets written up a couple of times. And finally, the third time, he sits down with his or her supervisor and HR and almost gets fired. And, and so this is what it looks like. It's really part and parcel of everyday life. And it's up to the individual to decide to turn away from the destructive practice, whether they're habitually tardy, whether they won't share with their siblings, or whether somebody's got an, addic- an addiction or, or some other moral problem. And that's why I say the scripture has one meaning, but many applications. My point is this, is that in a civilized society, in a stable society, we see this principle of confrontation and intervention at work on many levels. In fact, every level of society. It's just that we've kind of lost track of things as a society as we've gotten further away from God. And so you have people who need to be confronted in the workplace, in the home, in the family, or people who are abusing substances and have become addicted. And sometimes you confront one-to-one, and the person runs you off, throws you out, only to call or text in a couple of days later to apologize and to repent. Sometimes you get to the point of bringing in one or two or three extra people to confront. The culprit erupts in anger and embarrassment, continues on the path, but a few weeks later comes to their senses. There's no perfect timetable. Yeah, so really, there is no magic formula. There's no easy way to necessarily go about this, correct? That's correct. There is no perfect timetable because it depends on how severe the problem is, how entrenched it is, and it depends on the personality of the confronter and the person they're confronting. And so there's no magic formula. There is a process. If there's a magic formula, it's the Word of God, not to be irreverent or to be flippant. The process that God has given us in his inerrant word that has come through Jesus Christ in Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is the magic formula. But the timing of all this is different in different situations. But the sooner the intervention starts, the better the chances are of correction, of beating the habit, or the conversion. The person may realize that they need a savior and they may find him that way. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is already at work on their hearts. They see, maybe they've been exposed to the gospel, exposed to the church, and they know something's messed up. But make no mistake, repentance, a change of mind leading to a change of heart and actions, is vital. That's that significant emotional event where they change direction. And sometimes such things take time. And I would say that sometimes there's relapse and people fall off the wagon and don't continue down that path as well, right? That's exactly right, Mark. And I don't want to get hyper-theological or hyper-technical. All things are theological, of course, but repentance is both an event and a process. We we come to Christ, that's repenting unto salvation. But also, we, we put off bad habits and put on good habits, bad practices and put on good practices. That's spiritual growth, that's sanctification. There's a parallel with that in the intervention Progress sometimes comes in fits and starts. You have physiological problems, you have emotional and uh, psychological problems, and it's kind of volatile sometimes, kind of like the stock market. You always see the ups and downs in the market, market volatility, but there's always usually, in the scheme of things, an upward trend. And so addicts may struggle for a lifetime. Life may be quite difficult, but their beating the addiction, shall we say, isn't impossible. And there can be some crashes along the way as long as the crashes 
aren't too many in number. In other words, as long as the trend isn't a constant crash, they're going to fall off the wagon here and there, perhaps. But the, the longer they go into this process of repentance, the greater their chances of success. And besides that, where there's hope, there's God. And that's why it's better if they're a believer or better if the significant emotional event is really conversion coming to Christ. Okay, so that all sounds great for uh, somebody who is a believer or at least professes to be a believer. But what do we do if the addict isn't a believer? Intervene anyway. And if you can, include the church if that's appropriate. And there are professional resources for intervention, too. If the person is an unbeliever, the person has no knowledge of the Word of God or God, the person is totally secular, you can do things like contact your insurance provider, an EAP program at work, employee assistance program at work. But from my vantage, Christ is essential. Even when the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, conditioned, imprisoned by drugs, substances, dopamine, mental anguish, you name it. And so we need a world-changing, soul-changing, life-changing, eternity-changing power brought to bear upon the situation, and that is the power of the one true God for whom nothing is impossible. In Christ, with Christ, there's always hope. Amen to that. I think without Christ, things are are very difficult, and, and I do think, you know, um, Christ is essential to these things, and, and the God, the creator of this universe, uh, the one true God, is really the one who can change hearts and, and change trajectories of lives. And uh, and I think that's probably a good place for us to wrap up, uh, to always end on that hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the hope that we have uh, in the gospel to change lives. I agree. You know, it, with Christ, there's hope in the power of God to change someone who is dead in their sins and trespasses to someone who is made alive in Christ. It, it's just so essential. You know, it does no good for them to uh, clean up the outside of their cup and put a paint job on a, on a rotten tomb and have no relationship with Christ because then they still die and pass into a merciless eternity because they rejected Christ or did not embrace Christ. Just one more thing, Mark, actually two. Next week, we start a series on human sexuality. We'll be talking about your sexual identity. We'll be talking about gender issues and gender dysphoria and trans issues. So pray for us. This is going to be a somewhat of a controversial uh, uh, podcast series. Also, just to remind you, we're going to have our first interview Friday on January 29th. We'll be interviewing Rod Dreher. He's the author of the best-selling book, Live Not By Lies, How to Be a Christian Dissident. And so get ready for that because we'll drop this podcast on Wednesday and then we'll have the other podcast on Friday. So you get a double whammy. In the meantime, if you need further resources for this podcast on addiction, you can visit us online at www.gracetoliveradio.org and click the podcast resource button. If you'd like to ask me a question, I'd love to hear from you. I try to answer emails within 24 hours. Email me at keith, K-E-I-T-H, at hillside.org. You can learn more about Hillside Church at www.hillside.org forward slash services, and you can watch our Sunday services at 9 and 1045, or you can uh, make a reservation and join us in person for an in-person service. We practice social distancing, so you'll have to make a reservation. Now, before we go, if you're listening on Apple Podcast or iTunes or Spotify or Amazon Podcast or whatever podcast platform you're listening on, be sure and give us a good rating. Give us a 
five-star rating, and share us with your friends so that we can reach and help other people. As always, we release these podcasts on Wednesday, so we hope you'll join us next Wednesday next time. If you don't mind, think about visiting our Patreon page so you can support this ministry. This is Keith Crosby with Mark Stickler, Out of My Mind. God bless you and keep you.